Welcome to The Wisdom Show, a gathering place for the world's leading experts in the fields of human potential, spirituality, personal development, health, relationships, and more. Join us as we evolve together to the highest expression of our lives. And now, your host, Gene Swan. Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. We are glad you're with us, especially today. We have a guest who is known the world over for his insights into how we heal. His many books on the subject, his storytelling, his warmth, and his contribution to the planet. In fact, he was recently voted one of the top 20 most spiritually influential living people on the planet today by the Watkins Review in London, England. For many, Dr. Bernie Siegel, or Bernie as he likes to be called, needs no introduction. He's touched so many lives. In 1978, he drew international attention when he began talking about patient empowerment. This is an issue at the forefront of medical ethics and spiritual issues still today. Dr. Bernie's also a great teacher on the role of consciousness and healing. And we're going to learn today what his decades of experience with cancer patients has taught him about how we heal. Bernie, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jean. We are so happy you're with us, and we have so much to talk about, especially with the role of consciousness in healing. Now, this is being talked about in alternative modalities and in energy healing, but mainstream medicine has not embraced this. Can you tell us how you, a medical doctor, came to understand that our thoughts and beliefs are the basis of healing? Well, what it started with was a patient of mine who was attending what I thought was a workshop run by Dr. Carl Simonton back in the 70s, uh, teaching, you know, patient empowerment, imagery, things of this sort. And from the title of the conference and run by a radiation therapist, a doctor, I thought, you know, it'll be filled with doctors. I was the only doctor out of 125 people. And my patients could now sit with me in the audience. And the one woman, her quote, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me, so I need to know how to live between office visits. And that led me to start support groups as a way, really, of healing my wounds. You know, all the things you can't fix and cure, but if you can help people to live through the experience and with it, then you've done something. You don't have to feel like a failure. And... Um, after I started support groups, of course, if you had to summarize what you were asking, what you find is when you help people live and they really begin to enjoy their lives, they don't die when they're supposed to. I mean, I, I just, uh, my mail, emails and letters, I just got a letter from an attorney, and I I haven't heard back from him. I emailed him, but because I say he's not a normal attorney. I mean, here's a guy who's in touch with his feelings, but he said he was attending some professional meeting, and he was early, and there was a used bookstore in the building. So he went there, and he had cancer, told he had a 5% chance of living five years. So he went to the bookstore, looked in the cancer section, found my book and one other, and started reading it and transformed his life. I mean, all the things he puts in the letter are, are the classical changes I try to create in people from you know, eliminating and abandoning the wounds of the past and changing his life now and so forth and so on. Now, here he is, alive and well, with no sign of cancer. Now, his doctor, he went to his doctor, he said, um, would you like to know what I did? No, not really. Radiation <laughs> therapist, would you like to know what I did? 
No. Nurse and social worker, yes, we want to know what you did. We'll put it in the record. <laughs> That's the sad part. You know, the doctors are trained to treat the disease, so they don't understand that he had something to do with this. I mean, the, the classic is always, I went to my doctor yesterday. He said, you're doing very well. Keep it up. Why didn't the doctor say, you're doing quite well. Uh, you want to share with me what you're doing? Maybe I can pass this on to other patients. So I learned what I call survival behavior and, and you know, began to study, in a sense, the people who didn't die when they were supposed to. And they always had a story is basically what it amounted to. Um, and that included refusing treatment to go home and make the world beautiful when you're a landscaper, to go and die in the mountains of Colorado. But then... <laughs> When I wasn't invited to the funeral, I called, and he answered the phone and said, it was so beautiful, I forgot to die. You know, buying a house on the ocean in, and, and sitting on the porch meditating and canceling the dress code at work. That's a quote from a millionaire. He said, why am I going to wear a tie and a jacket if I'm going to be dead in a few months? Um, and one more, uh, and I don't make up any of these stories because the letter came saying, I was told they had two months to live, and this time I agreed with my doctor because I really felt bad. So I made out, you know, my will, and then I bought a dog and put it in a backyard wildlife habitat and laughed more. And it goes on and on and ends with, I didn't die, and now I'm so busy I'm killing myself. Help, where do I go from here? See, the other side of the coin is Monday morning, more heart attack, stroke, suicides, and illnesses. And though I was blamed for, well, I was blamed for blaming my patients, let's put it that way, because I began to say to people, what's going on in your life? And other doctors would say to me, you're blaming your patients. But the poets, the songwriters, and finally doctors and research people have showed that things like retirement, loneliness, uh, you know, affect genes in an adverse way, whereas laughter, relationships, help you stay alive and healthy. And, you know, that's the biggest reason women live longer than men with the same cancers. Uh, it's because the women are into relationships and the men are into, I can't work, what's the point of living? And the women aren't dying because they have nine kids or 12 cats and <laughs> have to take care of them. But for the women, I try to remind them that when the kids leave home or the cats all die, you are also your own child, so take good care of yourself, too, and treat yourself as well as you did your pet, and to show the men that there is a family sitting around them. You know, they're saying this in the office with their wife and children sitting next to them, but there's no point in living, I can't work anymore, and to try to get them to relate to their families instead of being on the computers and uh, all the electronic gadgets and keeping busy and working so we'll have a big house and a nice car um, instead of relating to their family. So you weren't blaming them. You were asking them to take responsibility by looking into other areas of their lives, right. not, ju not just the physical compartments of our bodies, yeah. but how are you living? What are you thinking? What right. are you believing? You know, I, I mean, the, um, oh, his name popped out of my head. You know, he was injured in, in the horse uh Accident. Christopher Reeves. Christopher right. Reeves, yeah, just popped back. Now, his wife develops cancer, see, after he dies. 
And so if she came into my office, I'd say, what's happened the last few years in your life? And if she said, my husband was quadriplegic, he just died, yeah, you know, that's a part of what led you to have cancer at this time. And again, this is not blaming her, but let's look at your life. Do you have meaning in your life? Do you have other relationships? Um, do you want to keep going? Um, so, you know, in that way, people healed their life because the other quote is from Mother Teresa, I will not attend an anti-war rally, but if you ever have a peace rally, call me. So I try to get people to find peace, heal their lives, then derive the physical benefits from it rather than the other way around, having a painful life and being more vulnerable to disease of all kinds. It isn't just cancer, whether it's getting pneumonia or developing cancer, um, all these things relate to your vulnerability and your life. And I want your body, the way I summarize it is, I want you to love your life and love your body. So it gets that live message and does all it can to keep you here. I thought it was interesting. Christopher Reeve's wife died of lung cancer, and in Chinese medicine, lungs are associated with grief. So that was part of her yeah, and, her, and, her reason for becoming yeah. sick. And And, you know, this is the kind of thing doctors would say to me, oh, that's crazy. I can't accept that. Because uh, there's a line from a poem by W.H. Auden. The poem is entitled Miss G, and it's a lonely woman uh, who develops cancer. But when the doctor comes home that night, he says to his wife, now, you see, this is a poet. Now, he can't, he isn't making this up. He's seen it in the world. He, he says to his wife, cancer's a funny thing. Childless women get it, and men, when they retire, it's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. A doctor said to me, just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. You see, but decades later, studies are done showing the effect on genes of loneliness. So now he, I could say to him, look, we have a study. So what the poet said is true. And uh, I know various uh, therapists who say they don't do research unless they find it in a poet, poem or a song. In other words, that others have seen the world and uh, verifying what they think needs to be looked into and researched. And um, this is something, again, as part of what I call medical information, you don't get a true education about people. See, wh when you go back, there was a book by a Jungian therapist, Alita Evans, um, about you know cancer. And when you go back, say, into the 30s, you know, before all the modern treatments, doctors and therapists looked at all these psychological factors and could see that they had a relationship. And what was interesting, when I first wrote articles after getting into dreams and drawings and other things that doctors aren't taught, that upset me greatly when I began to learn from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and, you know, Jung's writings, um, how the mind and body connect, I wrote articles and sent them to medical journals. It came back saying, interesting but inappropriate for our journal sent them to where it's appropriate, came back again. It's appropriate, but it's not interesting. We know this. And that really got me quite angry at what I call a lack of education uh, because the psychological and psychiatric journals were quite familiar with what I was writing. Even Carl Menninger, many years ago, when my first book came out, I sent it to him as uh, you know to read and comment on. 
he sent me back a note. He said, I was about to write a book called Ten Hopeless Cases, about ten people, all of whom should be dead today, but they're alive and well. But I'm not going to write it because you just did. Now, that's from a psychiatrist, eh? But, you know, present the same thing to surgeons and others, and you're on all the famous talk shows, and they're yelling at you and telling you you're crazy. That was the 1986 book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles? First book, yeah. There was a lot of reaction to it, right? (laughs) Yes, I know. And And I think some of it was because I was a doctor, if you know what I mean. Exactly. Norman Cousins wrote his book, and uh, he created a bit of a stir, you know. But, um, again, he wasn't a doctor, so it's easier for doctors to say, oh, you know, that's Norman Cousins, and he's not a doctor, and who knows if he really had the disease, and, you know, they could play it down. But when another physician confronts them, um, then they had a lot more trouble dealing with it. So the fact that you are a medical doctor is the reason that you in particular have been able to bring so much awareness to this, because you bring that credibility, you bring that patient experience, and people had to listen and pay attention and say this is real. Yeah. See, when you'd be on these talk shows, the audience would be nodding their head yes in agreement with me, and all the other professionals, you know, sitting around me would be arguing with me. But if you looked at the audience, you'd notice their heads are going up and down because they've lived the experiences I'm talking about, you know, while the doctors are thinking about a diagnosis and totally unaware of the patient's experience. So why is it that there's so much resistance from the medical community? Because quantum physics has proven that we are all energy. And so it is scientific. It's not just some great idea. Why won't they embrace that? Is it just too difficult to change their thinking? Why is there so much resistance? I think the resistance is in the, you might say, the education aspect, that if we were trained, and this was part of our training, you know, courses in healing, energy, whatever you want to call it, then when you graduated, you you would have an open mind. You know what I mean? It would be part of your vocabulary and part of your experience. But when you go through medical school and, you know, this is an ad from New England Journal of Medicine. I was depressed, unable to cope. I went to see my physician. I said, you've got to help me. He prescribed an antidepressant, and I feel better now. And that's an ad from drug company. And I wrote them, and I wrote the journal. I said, don't you think the doctor ought to say, tell me what's going on in your life? Why why are you depressed at this time? And they canceled the ad. But you see, when it's depression, here's the pill. You're overweight, oh, we have a new pill now. See, you read the paper. Um, You know what I mean? It's always not what's going on in your life. Why are you overeating? Were you unloved by your parents? Why are you an addict? Um then we would be helping what I call reparent people, giving them self-worth and self-esteem, and they'd be taking care of themselves. Because I'm always saying that information doesn't change anybody. And I mean that literally. You know, uh, I mean, unless you're totally stupid, (laughs) you know that cigarettes, you know, and two bottles of soda filled with sugar aren't good for you, and, you know, and, and being an addict and alcohol and drugs and... But why do people do it? Because of where they're coming from in their life. And uh, that's the part that medicine needs to look at, what I call reparenting. You know, what the doctors of maybe 100 years ago did, they knew their patients, they cared for them, 
and they help them, you know, feel good about themselves and take care of themselves. And today, uh, you don't know anybody. It's, okay, here's what you do, take this, go here, have this done. Um, it's not about you and your life and uh, let me help you to heal your life, but here's a pill to cure the disease. And if you don't cure it, you know, we failed. And uh, it's, it's always this battle against the enemy. So you empower the disease and you disempower your patients. Uh, it just gets sicker and sicker. We need to make it a human experience. Well, let me add one thing because one more thing. Um, I will tell medical students and doctors, draw yourself working as a doctor, okay? And <clears throat> I got pictures handed to me I couldn't believe. Uh, and I mean this literally. There, there, there are pictures given to me with no people in the picture. Mm. You get computers and, you know, drugs and prescription pads and stethoscopes, and but no people. Interesting. And, and most people just draw themselves behind a desk with a diploma on the wall behind them, see? And it's an, an incredibly rare number who will draw themselves handing a patient a tissue, touching a patient, kneeling before a wheelchair, you know what I mean? Being there um, and caring and touching another human being and not touching, you know, again, with an instrument. But uh, when I saw those pictures, uh, see, again... We need to analyze why people become doctors. Because you put on your application, which many do, I'm fascinated by the human body. But guess who shows up in the body? A person. As a veterinarian said to me when I told him I'm going to quit medicine, it was too emotionally painful and become a veterinarian, he said, don't. The, pe the people bring the pets in. See? And he helped me, because he was my patient, focus on the people in the waiting room and helping the people, not, again, back to the disease. But that's the part we have to understand. Why are you a doctor? Let's look at the healthy reasons. Well, death fascinates me. I think I'll go into pathology, and then I'll help kill people. See, Jack Kevorkian. Now, I really feel if somebody had helped Kevorkian in a therapeutic way while in medical school, he could have ended up being the head of a hospice. You know yeah. what I mean? He Helping could have people. It around. Yes. Yeah. So it wouldn't be the unhealthy way. I mean, I remember Menninger with a sense of humor saying to me, Bernie, what if you became a surgeon as a reaction formation to your destructive tendencies? Okay? Mm. And I love telling that to people. Why'd you become a surgeon? Well, as a reaction formation to my destructive tendencies. I didn't want to end up in jail, and this way I get to cut people up and get paid for it. That's really frightening. Is that what yeah. a lot of them say? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, but, that is... Uh... Oh, but you see, for, for some, it is true, but they don't know it because oh, it's it isn't brought to their consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, they're operating. I mean, you could make decisions to operate on people who don't need surgery. Uh, because you want to cut people up. So it, it can get unhealthy and sick. And, you know, in medical school, it was always a joke that the kids who went into psychiatry were the ones with the most troubles. You see, be, and, and this is something that psychiatrists know. If everybody who comes into your office has the same problem, it's your problem. 
You know what I mean? You're really treating yourself with every client and every patient. But yes. when every patient has a different problem, you're, you've resolved yours so you can really focus on theirs. And I'd say in all specialties, that's a part of the difficulty. Right. That um, it, most, a lot of them might not even have the awareness that they are, they do have this subconscious desire to heal themselves, and that is why they're doing it. Right. Um, you mentioned the pictures. Uh, that they're so revealing about how people perceive their medical care. I understand you're writing a book about how drawing and art can help to heal. Yeah. I mean, I've got a publisher who is willing to, I think, do about three dozen pictures because I guess it's expensive to put them in, you know, books. Um, but two books that helped me, one was... Um, Life Paints Its Own Span by Susan Bach, a Jungian therapist in London who I got to meet and work with, and also with Greg Firth, The Secret World of Drawings. But you see, um, they were both Jungian therapists. Uh, Bach knew Jung, and she would always say he was always fascinated by the somatic aspects of the drawings. See, that's something else. No doctor has ever been told. Carl Jung interpreted a dream and diagnosed a brain tumor correctly. Wow. From the dream. That alone. is absolutely and amazing. In this, yeah, in the drawings. That's why I was sending them to medical journals, because I began to make decisions based on whether people needed surgery, didn't, uh, you know, because of their drawings. They don't know they're drawing anatomy, if you know what I mean. Because um, I... You know, when I show an audience these slides, I say, tell me what part of the body you know, this person has a problem in. So you can see sails on a boat looking like breasts, a tree with all the branches looking like a brain with all the folds in, in it and so forth. And it's amazing. You know, they look and then it's, wow. Um, yeah, so these were things and the various colors have meaning that allowed me to know my patients better and to listen to them because if they said, I had a dream, and I know something's going on. Um, I don't care about, you know, the mammograms normal. I, you know, the dream is telling me it isn't. I would always listen to them, or if the drawing showed something, and go ahead and do a biopsy. On the other hand, oftentimes I was reassured, because I just was thinking of one. A woman brought her daughter in and said, lymphoma runs in the family, and my daughter has a lot of large nodes in her neck, and we think she has lymphoma too, and I'm really worried about it. And the daughter brought two pictures with her. She had drawn a picture of herself, and in the second picture, there was this great big cat with long claws sticking out. And I said to the mother, don't worry, she doesn't have lymphoma. The mother said, what do you mean? How do you know? I said, look at her drawing. She has cat scratch fever. And she did. I mean, I don't disregard you know, uh, everything. So we took one of the nodes out, and indeed, it was cat scratch fever. It was an infection. Amazing. But and you're, the, you're the only one doing this? It's amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, other, you know, at the hospital, see, they, they were changed by the experience. I mean, at first, again, Siegel's crazy. And the next thing you know, the operating room made a coloring book for kids, you see, to fill in and how much they then knew about the child and the child's family. Um, and, and intuitively, see, one child, the mother had muscular dystrophy. Now, this is a little child who needs surgery. He doesn't know much about his mother's disease or anything else. But 
in the coloring book, the first picture is the operating room with the anesthesiologist sitting there, and it says the anesthesiologist wears a green outfit that looked like pajamas, yet the child drew the anesthesiologist in red. Now, you'd say, why did he do that? It says he's wearing green. Well, this child intuitively knew what the anesthesiologist then told me, that there's a danger from muscle relaxants because of his mother's problem, that he may have some genetic problems, and instead of the muscles relaxing, they all contract, creating a great deal of heat in the body and could damage his brain if his temperature goes way up. So I said, look at the last page. If he draws himself in purple, a spiritual color, we're canceling the case because I am not going to take a chance that this child is telling me I'm going to die. We looked at the last page, and it had red and black, which said, my leg hurts. That's where the surgery was, and his shirt was now in black, saying, I'm not happy being here. Um, <laughs> so we went ahead with the surgery, and he did okay. Wow. But, you see, those were the things that changed the anesthesiologists or the surgeons because they'd say, hey, that's really interesting. And when it became interesting, then minds opened up. Wow, so you're using intuition in a, in a unique way to um, interpret what's going on with the patient. Uh, that sounds like a fascinating book. We have, uh, Bernie, yeah. since you've graciously agreed to take some phone calls, we do have someone right. on the line. Let me mention one more story before, because it's not only the negative side, but you see, if you say to somebody, um, draw your treatment, sometimes it's a gift from God, sometimes it's the devil giving me poison but also the power of the mind. There are cases where, due to repairs and errors, people were not radiated or given chemotherapy, yet they had the side effects and the tumor shrank because they thought they were being treated. So the placebo effect is very powerful, and that's been proven. The mind and the patient's belief, yeah. Right, absolutely, and that's what your work is all about. Uh, we have Karen on the line from Oregon with a question for Dr. Bernie Siegel. Hi, Karen. Hi, hello, Dr. Siegel. Hi, Karen. Um, I'm a student of metaphysics and NLP. I have um, Shogun's syndrome and fibromyalgia, and I have had it uh, for over 40 years. Now I'm having liver and pancreas issues. And how does a person keep from giving up when you're feeling that alternative medicine isn't working and neither is traditional medicine? Well, you have to keep searching, but, I mean, it relates to faith, um, you know, to keep what I call an inner peace, like the still pond, I mean, to keep your mind at peace versus jumping ahead and seeing all the things that are going to go wrong. I mean, to live in the moment in the day. I mean, part of what I say to people from the psychological perspective always is, see, you gave us your diagnosis, and you don't have to answer this now, but think of the words you'd use. If I said to you, what I'm interested in is what you're experiencing, what does it feel like to be going through fibromyalgia and shoguns and so forth, and write down those words, then look at the words you came up with. Now, the negative words, I'd say, ask yourself, what else in my life fits those words? Thing. So if somebody said pressure, I'd say, okay, what's creating pressure in your life? Now, if somebody said it's been a wake-up call and a gift, okay, wonderful. You know, you've learned new things from it. And that is something to also do. I'm going through hell. What am I to learn from this experience? That's a statement from Joseph Campbell when Nietzsche said, love your fate. And he interpreted it as saying, 
what are you to learn from this? So look at it in that way. Um, the spiritual faith, as I said, I know people who have left their troubles to God and had disease go away, but it's also okay to be angry at God and express anger. This is what I call survival behavior. And matter of fact, on my website, it's called Immune Competent Personality. Um, and you can look that up, Bernie Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L-M-D.com. Another is with any autoimmune disease, particularly anger. Louise Hay brings this up. I've seen that too, that it can relate back to your childhood, how you were treated by your parents, and express the anger. Get it out, you know, in, in a healthy, safe way. Um, it can be in construction. It can be in sports. It can be, you know, emotionally expressing yourself, but get the anger out. And I keep searching, too, whether it's homeopathy, naturopathic, you know, physicians, things you're doing. And last but not least, uh, something uh, Jean mentioned earlier about energy. Um, there's a book out called The Energy Cure uh, by William Bengston. And he has cured not just people but mice of cancer when they're injected with cancer and should be dead in a month and they're walking around fine. So you could look into that and have others become what I call the battery cables, you know, put their hands on you to go to healers, energy healers, and let them bring that energy into your body and help it to heal, you know, to see you back being a normal, healthy person again, doing all the things you love to do and to keep working on that. Wow, I think it's amazing that you would recommend an energy healer. Being a medical doctor, it's, it'll probably be a while before a lot of other medical doctors follow suit and, and, and would um, suggest something like that. I think it'll be a decade or two until energy becomes a part of medicine. In other words, it, it's when you see it in front of you over and over again, then finally somebody says, okay, let's do research, let's look into this, let's see. And um, when I mentioned the mice and, and Bengston, that was done as a study. You know, they injected mice with cancer. Some are a control group. They put, they had to put them in another building because they were in the same room. Uh, they also lived a little longer when he was treating, you know, other mice. But the mice he treated were fine. The others are all dead in 28 days. So you can't deny, you see, that's the part I get upset with in medicine. I can't accept that. You know, it's like an astronomer saying, I can't accept the universe. doesn't make sense. I mean, but we're here, okay? I know you can't explain it, but we're here. So, you know, when I hear about them sending out, you know, uh, like spaceships to the end of our universe, it fascinates me. And, um, you know, my sense of humor says maybe God will pick it up and write a note and say, yeah, I got this, thanks and send it back um you know it's that's why life is a miracle i'm in awe of creation so i use the word potential you know i i have i don't limit what you're capable of in my mind i say let's look at your potential and ernest holmes uh science of mind in the book he wrote this sentence that i loved and knew he had to be smiling when he wrote it but what if Jesus was the only normal person who ever lived? <laughs> and, I mean, I just love a comment like that. But when you look at potential, um, you know, I don't take people's hope away because I don't know the future. You know, like this lawyer who said, 
I was given a 5% chance of being alive five years later. Well, most people would get so depressed, they would go home, climb into bed, and be dead. I mean, I've seen that happen, too, when doctors and insurance plans have taken people's hope away um, and not willing to invest in more treatments. They've gone home and climbed into bed and, boom, turned the switch off and are dead. And then there are others who keep fighting and trying. And, right. uh, you know, somebody like yourself, and I'd say, keep it up. You just don't know. Uh, things about the liver, I mean, because I just got an article about, N, not an article, but a book a woman wrote, N-acetylcysteine, that um, her daughter has, um, I forgot the name of the disease, some genetic problem in the family, and the liver fails, and they couldn't get her a liver transplant. And the mother began to look into other options and started her on some of these supplements. And her daughter's alive and well today. So, with Karen, her liver. Karen, did that uh, answer your question? I guess Karen has left the line. All right. I think it more than answered the question. Yes. You have some amazing insight into this. And, yes, when doctors say you have three months to live, they people do die on schedule, which right. proves that when they're, to, when they're not uh, programmed with that information, the difference that they can have in their lives, which I'm sure you've seen for decades with patients. One of our children did, as a, in an art class, he took the word words and filled the canvas with it, just writing words, words, words. But when you looked at it and you brought it home, I realized words become swords. So if you write words, 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 it looks like swords, 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 swords. And I realized you could kill or cure people with words. I mean, they're like a scalpel. And uh, he really woke me up to the potential. So I began to call it deceiving people into health. I mean, I really looked at, at how I spoke to them. See, again, which doctors are not trained to do. You know, how do you talk to people? How do you tell them they have a life-threatening illness? Um, uh. how do, where do we stand today, Dr. Bernie? I mean, as far as, you know, with Obamacare and we have uh, people, how important do you think it is that people empower themselves because they don't really have the answers they're seeking as the way it, it right. stands now? Yeah, I, I say if you're a good patient, you're in trouble because the word patient means a submissive sufferer. What you need to be is what I call a respite, a responsible participant. And even my sense of humor, I say, if you ever go to the hospital, you take a magic marker, a noisemaker, and a water gun. Why do you want a magic marker? You're right on your body, caught here, not this one, stupid, because of the mistakes that it made. You want a noisemaker because when you push the call button, as many people have said, I get an hour of uninterrupted silence. So, I mean, I know people would be dead today if they didn't have a roommate. You know what I mean? Yes, it's it's, it's not really funny, but it's just a it's just unbelievable. The gun was literally used by a teenager who was dying and would spray people because he'd shut the door to be with his girlfriend, his family, and they'd barge in for you know reasons that weren't significant medically, and so he'd squirt them so he could express his anger. You see, and without hurting anybody, and the nurses appreciated it. And never took the gun away from him, and that see nurses are more likely to appreciate it because they understand the patient. They, they, even today, nurses are getting upset because they are having less and less time to spend with patients and get to know them and, and truly care for and about them. So what's the difference that you see in people um, that do heal? Let's say two people have the same disease or cancer. One heals and goes on to have an incredible life, and the other doesn't survive. What, what are the differences between the two people? 
run through that list I mentioned quickly. It Number one is having a sense of meaning in your life and daily activities. As I said, Monday morning has a higher mortality rate. But if you have a sense of meaning, and what I see in the survivors is, yeah, you close your law office, you start playing your violin, thing. you go back to school, you don't retire. I mean, you, you keep contributing in a creative way to the world. You can express anger appropriately in defense of yourself. So if you're not treated with respect, you make some noise. I don't say you don't love the person, but you say, I don't like how you're treating me and what you're doing here. That you ask friends and family for help and for favors when you need them. You don't learn you have a life-threatening illness, go home and say, I don't want to upset anybody. That is not healthy. You ask for it, whether it's I need a ride to the doctor or I need somebody to make dinner for me tonight, I'm getting my treatment, whatever it may be. Um, you learn, and the most important of all, to say no to things that you don't want to do, meaning if your family, if friends ask you for a favor and you don't want to do it, then the answer is no. And nurses have a lot of trouble not trying to rescue everybody and learning to say no. But I always say, if, if you say yes to everything, you're saying no to yourself all the time. So think about your time and how you want to spend it. Oh, and a wonderful, I love country, western, classic music, because it, it's about life. One line was, let your heart make up your mind. Okay? Right. And a lot of people are talking about that now with our shift in consciousness that's hope, right. hopefully happening, that what we need to do is get out of our minds and into our hearts, and we'll all be better off. And it seems to me that's the core of your message. How do you feel? Right. Other things that come up that I always say, if you're hungry, you don't get depressed. You get something to eat to nourish you. So if you don't like how you're feeling, ask, what do I need to change in my life? Okay. So you you seek nourishment. And again, the song said, I may be a block of coal, but I could be a diamond someday. <laughs> you take the charcoal, the darkness, under pressure, it becomes a diamond because it leads you to nourishment. So you don't sit there get, getting depressed because, you know, depression is no good for you, and then you get more depressed. Right. You get up and you take care of yourself and change. Bring some humor into your life. Play. And I say it in both ways. Um, laugh for no reason, and cancer patients who did that lived longer than those who didn't laugh several times a day for no reason. And the other is do what makes you lose track of time because I have found just personally that when I do something that makes me lose track of time, and it doesn't matter what it is, you're in a total trance state, free of disease and pain and everything else. And I mean that literally, because I could operate for hours at a time when I had a back injury and couldn't even stand up, but I had no trouble standing at an operating table because I cared about somebody, see? Or if I were painting a portrait, I could stand and have no trouble while I was painting, but when I was done, oh, I had to lie down. Um, and that impressed me, because it really sort of happened accidentally. I, I realized what was going on. Um, and it really impressed me how powerful, you might say, the chemistry in your body is when you're doing what you love and what's creative. You're in that timeless and, state of inspiration. Yeah. Yeah, and I really feel you don't age. If you never, I always say to people, if you never know what time it is, how can you get older? Mm -hmm. um, you know, they laugh. But I really think that those who are 
Well, as somebody who was in his 80s said, it's only work if there's someplace else you'd rather be. So if, if you're doing something that you don't see as work and that you really enjoy, you don't age the, the way somebody else says, oh, what a horrible day. And, you know, I'd say they've gotten 16 hours older in eight hours, and you may have only gotten four hours older in eight hours because of how you enjoyed it. And last but not least is that you don't live a role but an authentic self so that you're not mama or the wage earner. Uh, I always say how you introduce yourself to God also, that you know you're made of divine stuff. You know, you're a child of God and that you're here to live an authentic life, not one imposed on you. And not one from the ego, but from the spirit. Yeah, because you lose your true self if you become what the other authorities in your life want you to be or just your ego is in charge. Well, to quote a young man whose family had many millions of dollars, my father ruined my life when I was 21. He gave me a million dollars, so I had to be a success. And when you're a success, you're not happy. But when you're happy, you're a success. Hmm, I love that. Dr. Bernie, we do have another call about healing. Uh, Cheryl from Washington State is on the line. Hi, Cheryl. What's your question? Hi. I have a question. Um, I, I've been um, doing the Gerson therapy. I'm Basically, I'm a home setup trainer. And I wanted to find out, what is your opinion on how a pet can play a role in helping a person to heal? Pet? I have a house full. <laughs> and um, it, it, one study in Australia impressed me because this was, you know, statistically done. People had a heart attack, went home to a house with a dog. A year later, 5% had died. No dog, 26% had died. Now, wow. what we find is when you pet a dog, and probably a cat too, you know, a furry creature, your oxytocin and serotonin levels go up. So there's more bonding, because those are the hormones that rise after a woman delivers a child. Um, so the bonding hormones rise when you pet a furry creature. So they okay. help in relationships and connections and meaning. Um, yeah, they can be work too, but I think they, you know, they change you and your relationship with the world by having them. Right. Okay. And, um, okay. That's you know, all, to all me, it's like I'm always saying uh, we had five children and we've always had a house full of pets, but it's like having <laughs> a house full of children all the time. Uh, you right. know, to get you to laugh, focus in the moment. And the other thing I bring up, and I mean this literally, 900 years ago, Maimonides said, if people took as good care of themselves as they do their animals, they'd suffer fewer illnesses. Right, and th I agree. There was an article uh, Ann Landers put out many years ago, I think about yeah. over 10 years ago, where, you know, if you could start the day without caffeine, get going without pet pills, resist boring people with your troubles, eat the same food every day, be grateful for it. The list goes on and on and on and ends with, and if you do, then you're almost as good as your dog. Wow. So I tell people also to use animals as role models. You know, that they are living in the moment. You know, a dog with cancer doesn't say, what's going to happen to me next year? It's how can can we go out and run around and play today? And right. the same with their body image. I know one veterinarian, and I mean this literally, um, who was able to get through her mastectomy because she said, of all the animals I operate on, I amputate wow. legs, jaws, and they wake up and lick their owner's faces. 
they know that yeah. you love and be loved and teach us a few things. So yeah. you don't focus so much on your body. And last but not least, one more story from Animals as Teachers and Healers. It's a book that came out. Um, and uh, this person I know who wrote the book said that um, she developed cancer, had to go through radiation, chemotherapy, not given a lot of hope. Her boyfriend deserted her because he couldn't deal with it. She said, I'm totally alone, and a cat walks across the porch. So I thought, I might as well have company. I'll let it in. She <laughs> takes the cat to the vet the next day to be sure it's healthy because of, you know, her vulnerability due to her treatment, and learned the cat right. had feline leukemia, and the vet said, probably has a year to live. Susan said, I wow. came home, and um, she said, I thought, the cat's going to be dead, and I'm going to be dead. And I'm sitting there totally depressed on the couch while the cat is running around, leaping and bounding and having a wonderful day. And then right. she said, maybe the cat knows something I don't know. <laughs> and I, that cat saved her life. And I may add, the cat lived 14 years, and Susan's alive and well and married today. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that and can happen. And uh, I, I can't help it. I keep thinking of so many people in the office. A woman had 12 cats, develops cancer. Her children said, we don't even visit her. The house smells awful. I, so we're going to get rid of the cats now, say, because she has cancer. I said, no, if you get rid of the cats, your mother's dead. You go and clean the house, but tell her you can't find anybody to take those 12 cats. See, that's what I call deceiving people into health. I mean, Mama can't die. I got 12 cats. Nobody wants them. So she goes right on living and impress the family. Wow. Well, thank you so much for calling, Cheryl. We really appreciate it. And Dr. Bernie, I wanted to also ask you um, to touch on miracles today. Your latest book, A Book of Miracles, uh, in it you say that everyone should look for miracles and help make them happen every day. To me, it's the nature of life. And Einstein said the same thing. I mean, either everything's a miracle or nothing is, if you know what I mean. But to me, it's the, it's the again, I use the word potential. You see, bacteria change their genes, survive antibiotics. Viruses change genes, can handle vaccines. You cut a branch off a tree, it doesn't bleed to death. Or we cut ourselves. You put a Band-Aid on, and hey, it stops bleeding and heals. So... That potential, see, to recover and to heal is in us. And a lot of things we call miracles are simply, you know, what's happening is what we're potentially capable of. But I have to add this. When I talked about dreams, I was thinking about one of the calls and when we were talking. A woman goes to bed in a dream. A doctor comes in with darker skin and an accent and um, tells her that she has a lump in her right breast needs to be looked into. Woman wakes up, feels her breast, indeed there's a lump, goes to the hospital, gets examined, diagnosed with breast cancer. She's lying on the examining table waiting for a doctor to come in and tell her what's going to happen, and the doctor from her dream walks into the room and talks to her about her care and what they're going to do for her. Now, you see, that's the part that I would hear so often from patients. Um, and Jung said it also, the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. So, you know, we can call it miracles, but consciousness is an amazing thing. 
Another person has a dream, and a cat named Miracle walks up, says, this is how you should treat your cancer. Now, this is not a, you know, how does this person know anything about chemotherapy? I mean, she's not a doctor or a nurse, but a cat tells her, and she wrote it down and got her doctor to do it, and she's okay. And my real feeling about the miracles was that when you choose life, when you choose what is life-enhancing for everyone, when you're not selfish and saying, what's good for me, but what's good for the world and for everybody, then the miracles happen, and they're not accidents and they're not coincidences. If I may mention one more from the book, that a couple discharged from the armed forces on the West Coast, and we're going to drive home and enjoy the trip like tourists and, you know, be on vacation. Their car, every time they come to a hill, slows down. The mechanics don't seem to find anything wrong and can't explain it. But they decide to drive at night so they don't cause a problem, even though it messes up the fun that they were expecting to have and all the places they wanted to visit. They're driving through Nevada in the middle of the night. They come to a hill. So they are nice. They pull over because there's a car behind them. The car behind them pulls over and stops also, which makes them a little nervous. But the man walks over and says, You are driving a Pontiac Le Mans. I am one of the original designers. I know what's wrong with the car. It has to do with the hose that's sucking gas, and it's sucking too much gas rather than conserving it. Um, I can fix it for you. And he goes under the hood, sticks a pencil in this tube, and they have a wonderful trip home. Now, you'd say, how the hell does that happen? You're in the middle of the night driving to Nevada, <laughs> and the guy who designed the car is behind you, you know? Uh, yes, he was in the right place at the right time, that's for sure. But you see, my feeling was if they said, the hell with everybody, we're driving home during the day, we come to a hill, they can slow down, and that's their problem, you know, we're going to have a nice time, they never would have met this guy. Exactly. So it's listening to that intuition and following it and allowing things to happen, too. Just allowing them. Life. Not right. just what's good, but life. That's, oh, that is so inspiring. We have time for one more phone call, and we have Mark, who's on the line from Los Angeles. Hi, Mark. What's your question? Hi. Um, I just, um, Bernie, I just wanted to ask. A, a friend of mine has just been diagnosed with cancer, and I went and visited him yesterday. He, he says that he wants to fight it, he wants to live, but I can tell that it seems like on a certain level that he's kind of accepted that this is, you know, he, he has been, they have said that he's terminal. And I guess my question is just what's the best thing I can do for him? How can I minister to him best? Well, two things or three things. Um, one is listen. As Helen Keller said, deafness is far, darker by far than blindness. So ask him, how are you? How are you doing? Anything I can do for you? And listen, okay? Don't walk in and say, I heard Bernie Siegel. You should read his book, see? Because th that, you're not listening to him when you do that. But if you listen to him, hopefully, and he really talks, he'll hear himself. And he may begin to realize, boy, I'm depressed and I'm acting this way. Why don't I, you know, start living until I die? I mean, I visited a friend yesterday who's in hospice care. I mean, it's a pleasure visiting him. I mean, the house is fine, the attitude of his wife and everybody else. And I mentioned to her also to try to do the energy healing. Um, 
put your hands on him and send him, you know, images of himself as a healthy individual. Now, can you get him books? Yes. You can get him my book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, Peace, Love, and Healing, the first couple, uh, the book on miracles if you want, Faith, Hope, and Healing, which has to do with what we learn from cancer patients about survival. Um, you can get him the energy cure, but when you, if you do, just bring it to him as a gift. Say, you know, I care about you. The, these have been helpful for a lot of people, and leave it. If he never reads it, that's his choice, but he knows you cared by doing that. And I'd say okay. keep showing him that you care. And, you know, remind him he's not a statistic, that there's potential. Uh, you know, statisticians don't have a problem realizing numbers don't predict for the individual. What kind of work does he do? Um, we actually are gas salesmen. <laughs> All right. Because the reason I say that, you know, when you get an engineer or, you know, mathematicians, people who are in their head with numbers and all, they may be harder to get into feeling. Um, and, um, you know, so I'd say just try to keep his mind open, uh, you know, about survival behavior and that there are resources and let him know. But you can be a coach. That's the way I put it, see? Okay. But if he doesn't show up for practice, it isn't your fault, you know, that he never makes the team. And if he shows some interest in getting into these things, yes, then I start encouraging him, mention my website and so forth and so on, and uh, see what happens. Okay, okay. And it doesn't Thank you hurt. very much. I, I mean, appreciate it. You know, if you're close to him, I mean, it doesn't hurt to say, hey, you know, we got a party coming up, you got a birthday, you got, you know, if you give him something to focus on in the future that he would look forward to being at, that can make a difference too and help him uh, see that. Okay, well, okay. Thanks, okay. thanks so much, Mark, for calling. We really appreciate it. So, Bernie, yes, uh, you mentioned that earlier, too, the idea or you know, uh, that a person, if they have a mission or a sense of purpose, you mentioned a party as something to look forward to. But even beyond that, if people have a sense of what they're here for or how they right. can help others, that can help pull them through an illness as well, right? I saw that. My mother lived into her 90s, as did most of our relatives. Um, and what I found was if I called her and say, how you doing? she would tell me her troubles. But if I called her and said, how are you doing? And one of the grandchildren or great-grandchildren had a problem, she'd say, never mind asking. I want you to do this for so-and-so and so-and-so. You know, she would start being the therapist for everybody. And, you know, with all her years, she had, was a great therapist, a lot, a lot of experience. But if nobody in the family had a problem, then she would tell me <laughs> her troubles. So I, I've learned, especially with, you know, seniors, to say to the families, tell them your troubles and ask them to help you. Because literally in the, in the countries where, where people live to be 100 regularly, the seniors are respected for their wisdom. See? Um, I, well... I don't know, I guess we're getting close to being done, but let me clo close, if we may, with this quote, because I was taking care of a 90-year-old woman who developed cancer and gallstones after she was 90, and she was so mad at God for waiting all these years to then do this. But she'd been through so much. I said to her, would you come to our support group? You're a natural therapist. Uh, you help the Yale students. You do all kinds of things. Everybody learns from you. And she said, I don't know what I have to contribute, but if you want me to come, I'll come. And we're all talking one day about our fears. I mean, the room is just, uh, 
I mean, I, I didn't know how to handle it, what to say anymore. So I turned to her. I said, what are you afraid of? And there was silence for about three minutes, five minutes. Finally, she said, oh, I know what it is. I said, what is it? Driving on the parkway at night. Boom. The whole room busted out laughing. <laughs> you know, they're all afraid I'll die. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. What is she afraid of? Driving on the parkway at night. And that put everybody back in their place again. You know, with a smile, the fear left, and we went back to living again. And I'd say that's what people have to remember. You know, one of our kids I thought was going to be dead in a year of cancer uh, due to an X-ray that showed a tumor. At age seven, he came to me the day after I totally depressed the family, you know, telling them what's going to happen to their brother and so forth. And he came in. He said, Dad, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, yeah, what is it? You're handling this poorly. <laughs> a seven-year-old, huh? old telling his father that and he said we want to go out and play and you want us in our room depressed you know and he turned out to have a rare benign tumor so he is alive today but he taught me more in a week you know than uh, i learned in medical school about how to handle these things that is so wonderful and inspiring we appreciate your time so much thanks for sharing your message about love and miracles and hope for people it's really uplifting especially when people are having so many challenges today but i'd advise people to get any of dr bernie siegel's books you can because every single one of them will leave you uplifted and inspired and feeling better and and helping your life um so uh thank you dr bernie so much for being with us my pleasure. The wisdom is there wherever you look for it. You know, over the last few thousand years, there have been a lot of healers. So don't wait for a disaster. Learn from the wisdom of those who have preceded you. Thank you so much. And thanks to all our listeners and our callers who have shared this time with us. And let's hope we'll all live more wisely after hearing a lot of wisdom from Dr. Bernie Siegel. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. joining us. Be sure to visit us at thewisdomshow.com for access to archives of previous shows and special discount packages offered by our world-renowned experts. Thanks to internetaudiohub.com for our state-of-the-art broadcast sound. Internetaudiohub.com is available for all of your internet audio needs. We look forward to joining you next time on The Wisdom Show.